So listening this open ability to just listen, not for any particular sound or an object, but this open kind of perspective, allowing things to be what they are as we listen. We hear the crickets. The air conditioning. The silence. The nature of consciousness is silent. Peaceful. So in some of my teachings, I refer to the sound of silence. The silent sound, which is, of course, the sound. Is it a sound or is it just natural stillness, silence? So we're not looking for a sound or anything or for silence. It's not about, you know, trying to find it as an object. But learning to kind of trust in awareness, a kind of relaxed sense of being here, which includes everything. It's not discriminating, you know, choosing any particular thing. awareness of thinking like the thinking process is an object of consciousness rather than making thinking the subject of your life which we tend to do we see ourselves through the memories that we have through habits we create ourselves as a separate person, an ego. But you can be aware of thinking as an object. And behind each thought is the silence, emptiness, peacefulness. The thoughts come and go. They arouse emotions. We think of things of the past or imagine the future. We create emotions with, with our thoughts. So the thoughts are also observed. They're objects of observation. So it's not only the, the sensory objects what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch. It's also what we think and feel. Because this realm is a sense realm. 
when you reflect on it, the world that we live in, the bodies that we experience, that we're experiencing now are all about sensitivity. Pleasure, pain, neutral sensitivity. And sensitivity, sense uh, is also an object of mindfulness. We're not bound into sensitive forms that just kind of helpless victims of the sense realm, but we can also witness it, be aware of it, recognize that sensitivity is impermanent. So we have this ability to perceive, to feel, to sense, to think, and these are all sankharas, all conditions. And then the unconditioned is the awareness of them. So like getting, you know, getting to the root cause, they say, only so Manasikara, getting to the root of the problem. You know, so it's like inquiring into the way it is. It's investigation. And uh, Puto is a kind of reminder. The mantra Puto is a reminder of being this witnessing presence. Not as a person making judgments, value judgments about what you're witnessing, but being the Uto, the wise knower. All conditions are impermanent. The faith, Ankara, and Echa. So our refuge is in this awareness. But don't think of it as a kind of some personal refuge. It is what we truly are. Awareness itself is our true nature. It doesn't change. It isn't dependent upon conditions. It's the one constant factor that we recognize, not, it's not a becoming like that way, but recognizing that's stability, that's, doesn't change. This, this kind of awareness, this conscious listening, embracing the present as it is, Now, in terms of the second noble truth, the desire, three kinds of desire, gama dana, bhava dana, vipava dana, seeing desire, getting to know, before you can really let go of desire, you have to know desire, recognize what it is. 
It's a sankara, it comes and goes, you know. It's not a kind of permanent condition. We might see it as kind of personal problems, relate to it in judgmental terms, good desires, bad desires, my desires. But refrain from reflecting in that, using the personal pronouns or possessive ones like my desires. Because now we're refuge in awareness in Bhutal Tamo Sankho, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So desire then is to be recognized, to be observed, to notice, to be an expert. To know, you know, through investigation, not through belief. Not because it's the second noble truth, but because the second noble truth is an encouragement to investigate sensual desire, desire for becoming, desire for annihilation. And the realm we're experiencing through this form, physical form, through the senses, is a desire realm. So it's it's not about getting rid of desire. We can't do that. It's not an annihilation of desire or a suppressing of it, but a recognition. Kamadanhad, sensual desires like this. Bhavadanha, desire for becoming, getting something you don't have. Self-improvement, trying to get enlightened, Bhavadanha. So in the ego level, we think, I want, you know, I'm not good enough the way I am. I've got some missing things, I feel lack, I feel I suffer. I've got to get something I don't have, such as enlightenment. So this is a, an investigation, like thinking like this, listening to how you create yourself as somebody who lacks something, something wrong, something incomplete, something amiss that we've got to make right, and by getting something that we imagine, so this is like thinking, when you think like this, you're listening to yourself thinking, you're not, it's not to believe the thoughts themselves, but to make it manifest, this bhavadanha. You've got a, this feeling that the ego has, that we've got to get something where, that we lack. We're missing something. Then the vipavadana, the third desire, desire to get rid of, wanting to get rid of unpleasant moods, thoughts, memories, habits. It's a desire to annihilate, to destroy. And so you, you want to get rid of, it. like people feel, you know, have problems with anger. Anger is a very strong kind of primal emotion for all of us. 
anger and aversion. And the ideal, you know, is we shouldn't be angry, we should have loving kindness and the desire to become a saint or some kind of sage or ideal person that doesn't get angry. Is bhava dana. Desire to get rid of anger is vipavadana. So anger, you know, and you know, it's a part of the condition that it's a kind of what I call a primal emotion, like sexual desire and and aversion, anger, hatred. There, you know, these these forms, these physical bodies are born into a sense realm to procreate the species to for self-preservation, for survival. Anger and aversion is a survival mechanism. Sexual desire is a natural uh, condition for procreating the species. We have fear, which is another survival emotion, because there's a lot to be afraid of as a physical being, as an independent, separate person with a physical body, frail bodies that we have. So, you know, these are, uh, you know, seen and as we tend to take them personally. My anger, my sexual desires, my fears, and how we use this possessive pronoun, my, my problems. So there's encouragement to kind of refrain from always using these, these, uh, these, uh, possessive pronouns, personal pronouns. Just there is anger is like this. Sexual desire is like this. Fear is like this. See, you're not, you're not, you're recognizing it. You're allowing it to be what it is. Being patient with it, allowing when it manifests, when it arises. Being patient. Letting it go, let not attaching to it. Then you'll see it, it after all these, these emotions cease. In the silence of consciousness, in the peace of consciousness, they dissolve, they disintegrate when we let them be. When we're always resisting, fighting, identifying them in per, as personal problems, then they, we tend to reinforce the karma that we have with these emotions. Like the species, we're mammalian species, we're mammals. Animal forms, the human form. You know, it's, it's like the animal, like the animal kingdom, procreating the species. Why are dogs and cats, pigs, cattle, quai, horses, 
the very nature is to, to procreate their species and to survive. Survival mechanisms to live in this world where there's dangers, lots of fear, where we, you know, animals, we're all eating other animals. So the survival of the fittest, the law of the jungle. Fear is a, is a primal emotion. And then seeing that not as my problem, I have a problem with fear, but fear is like this. When you feel that emotion arise, there's annoyance, you're mindful of it. Then the reaction to it, out of heedlessness, is to try to get ready, you know, run away from it, get rid of it, annihilate it. That's vipavadana, desire to annihilate something you don't want. In terms of the thing, the advantage of our human birth is that we can make moral agreements. Like the five precepts in, in Theravada Buddhism. These are agreements that, that we make in, in, as a society of human beings to refrain from intentionally killing another human being. The second one to not steal or take things that don't belong to us. The third, about proper sexual behavior, not to use, exploit others sexually or misuse this, this energy that our bodies have. It's agreement not to do this, to do these things. The, the fourth one is about speech to be responsible for what we say. So when we talk to each other, when we we try, you know, not to use speech like cursing, swearing, abusing, insulting, offending, intentionally offending people, lying to people, you know, so we try. these are guidelines for action and speech. The fifth to refrain from getting addicted to alcoholic beverages or drugs, where we lose this sense of mindfulness, we get carried away with different states of mind in which we can kill, steal, lie, cheat, and so forth. So the animal kingdom can't come to agreements on moral behavior. You know, that's something they can't, you can't ask the tigers and lions and elephants, dogs and cats to take the five precepts. But society has, you know, all societies of human beings have got moral agreements about behavior. 
And so this is a gift we have as, as human beings with these animal bodies, with these intense emotions and urges, natural reactions that are part of the nature of the species. But we can be aware of that. So awareness is like the, what they call Buddha nature, or it's the, the word Buddha. I mean, is is the, ref, the ability we have to reflect on the way things are, to investigate reality, not to just be subjected to instinctual habits and operate only from survival mechanisms and instinctual behavior. We have all that, but we, we also have this ability to reflect. And so like the Four Noble Truths are directional signs to reflect, to investigate our, the reality of our experience. So the personal pronouns, we make sexual desire very personal. In the modern media, everybody's talking about their sexual inclinations, their sexual problems. You know, so it's everything sexual is becoming highly individual and personal. So we have, you know, have moral attitudes towards sexual behaviors that vary according to religions or cultures. But it is a strong natural energy as part of this, this realm, this realm that we are born into as human beings. Now in the monastic form, it's a celibate form. So our, we vow not to act on sexual energies that we all experience. Act or speak on them. But we have to be aware of them and see them in, not in terms of personal problems, but as sankaras arising and ceasing. Anger and aversion. You know, so say the monastic form of the Vinaya is, uh, is a kind of moral, ethical, uh, agreements, precepts, they're precepts, they're not commandments by God, they're, they're precepts, agreement, ways of, polite ways of behavior, kind of etiquette and social agreements as Buddhist monks. We have this 227 recitation every fortnight, the Padimokha So this is about action and speech. 
to live within the restraint of these precepts, but to not just be identified with the precepts as kind of and make it personal and tyrannical, but to use the precepts as a way of to reflect from when we have these urges to just speak in anger or want to feel revengeful or jealous or frightened. You know, we can strike out with our speech or our physical action, but we refrain from doing it. But we're aware that jealousy and fear and anger and desire for revenge, these are all kind of human reactions. But to see them from the puto position rather than the judgmental, these are my problems, then we have to go to psychoanalysts and think therapy and, and trying to deal with, you know, how I can make myself better, how I can deal with my anger and my resentments and my greed. So we reinforce this sense that all these are personal. They're mine and they and some of them, you know, they're all what we want to get rid of or change to become something else, a better person, kinder person, to be one who's brave and not afraid, and so forth. So with, with this, is all, this is all about thinking, creating thoughts, ideals, about what we'd like to be, and the critical mind saying, having it, condemning for what we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be weak or cowardly or frightened. We should be brave and strong. We should be kind, full of loving kindness. We shouldn't feel jealous and envious and mean-hearted. And so, so the ideals are one thing. They're created. You know, like I was saying before, ideals are created by us through thinking. You can create the finest possible ideal through thinking in superlative terms. The best, the kindest, the most beautiful, the most generous, the most compassionate. So we create, you know, ideals of God as some kind of being in the universe that is perfect. Because you can create this uh, with this superlative ability to using superlatives to think to create the best. We all know how we should be as ideals, or how the government should be as a democracy. We all know how each other, how men should be, how women should be, in terms of ideals thoughts. But as I've said before, ideals don't feel, they're not sensitive. They're perfect in their, in they reach that ultimate state of the best, the very best, but 
they don't feel anything. And so recognize that our life, our existence is all about feeling. These forms, these bodies are not ideal forms. They're very sensitive forms subject to so many other conditions affecting them, whether the, it's hot or cold, hungry, thirsty, young or old, male or female, the, the endless succession of experiences that don't fit into the ideal. But they're the reality of experience, you know, the way we are. This human existence, this form is like this. If we compare it to an ideal, then you're always going to feel that you're imperfect. You know, so you have an ideal for what a, a man should be, or a woman should be, what a mother, the perfect mother, or the perfect father. You can create ideals, and then the realities of your experience as a mother or a father is like this. So it's this ability to reflect in this way. You begin to to understand, to have metta. We have metta for ourselves, the hung sakito homi, may I be well. Not to, you know, say, uh, try to become perfect as a, as a person or an individual, but to recognize that the physical body, the conditions that we're experiencing are not self. They're not what we are. They're not mine, me or mine, you or yours. They are sankaras, so they arise and cease. That's what they're supposed to do. Sensitivity implies pleasant, unpleasant sensation where on the desire level, we only want pleasant sensations. We like everything to be pleasant, beautiful, harmonious, peaceful. The ideal society where everybody's equal, everybody keeps the precepts, democracy or communism, socialism, all these, these ideal Political philosophies are based on ideas of perfection. So, as much as we, you know, the ideal of the time is is a democracy, which is an ideal, beautiful ideal. But also, but without wisdom, then we're always going to be upset because democracy is an ideal. It's not the way things are. We have to deal with inequality, with, with changes that are beyond our control, with, with individual idiosyncrasies of unpredictable situations, uncontrollably incidences and so forth. 
where things aren't, people aren't acting the way they should, or life isn't the way it should be according to the ideal democratic attachment. So democracy, I'm not condemning it, because I'm just pointing out it, it is an ideal. It's like a guiding star. It's high above us. Equality and fairness and justice. Everybody keeping the precepts. Everybody responsible for their speech and action. Where there's, you know, the ideal where there's no it we're all quite equal and there's no kind of rich or poor, everybody is the same. That's an ideal. And that's a creation through the thinking process. When we always look to ideals, we can only complain about life, complain about ourselves or others, the family, the people we live with, the society we're in. Because there's no ideal society, no, no ideal person. So like in terms of Dhamma, the way things are, all conditions are impermanent. And that's a, that's, that's not an ideal. That's not the way things should be, that's the way they are under all conditions. Greed, hatred, and delusion are impermanent. They arise and they cease according to other conditions. When we see ourselves according to the critical mind, then we do see, you know, see faults, weaknesses, flaws, things we're ashamed of, secrets that we don't want anyone to know about, uh, fear of what others think, self-consciousness, worry about the future, anxiety, these kind of haunt our conscious experience of life because the future is unknown. We can imagine anything in the future. The past is a memory. So that's gone by, you know, if you, whatever you've done or said in the past, it comes into the present as a memory, and that is anicca dukkanata. Memories are not kind of permanent conditions that reside inside us, that linger and lurk inside our bodies or minds. They arise and cease their empty phenomena. So it's like listening to desire that which is aware of sensual desire is not sensual desire. You know, so desire through the senses arises and ceases according to conditions. But mindfulness is not sankara, so it doesn't arise and cease according to conditions. 
So whatever happens to you, whatever experiences you have during the day or night, you're aware of them. How you interpret them through the self-view, through the identity as a separate, independent personality, separate physical being from everyone else, then we create fears and endless problems because there is a lot to fear in terms of the you know if we are if it's, if we are just this limited form this physical form that you know it's, it's easily damaged emotionally we're very sensitive, so we can be easily offended or upset. Somebody look at us with crossed eyes or give us a dirty look, we can be upset the whole day. Somebody says something that we feel insulted or offended by, we're easily hurt, easily offended. We're sensitive in, in this way through what others, how they look at us, how they speak to us, as well as how we react to, to life, to other people, to the families we live in or the society we live in. So this is what sensitivity is about. But awareness is aware of sensitivity. You can't offend awareness, consciousness. You can, you can't, you know, no matter whether you, what you think of it or believe it to be, it's never offended. It's perfect, stainless, peaceful. So then, this is the encouragement to take our stand with awareness. Because that's our, what we really are, as we begin to see what we're not. Sapetama anatta, old dhamma, is not self. Like the, you can't find, you know, the separate, the sense of a separate self, that me and mine, my anger, my greed. You can't find any permanent separate self. And yet these thoughts, these emotions, these feelings arise and cease. Where do they come from? Where do they come if there's a only Dhamma? Then what, how, how do greed, hatred, and delusion, where do they come from? And so this is the great mystery, the great question that, that can be very interesting to reflect from. Because there's only Dhamma, then how could there be, which we call peaceful, 
then something like anger and hatred, jealousy and fear are not peaceful. Do they come out of thin air? So in terms of chant, like we have kusla dhamma, kusla dhamma, piyankata, tama. So in terms of dhamma, these are conditions like waves on the ocean. They're conscious forms. And they come from awareness, they come from consciousness, from the Dhamma, but they arise and cease. So they're merely the surface conditions that we identify with. Where Dhamma, in terms of a refuge, isn't taking refuge in, in greed, hatred, and delusion that arise and cease, but in the Amata Dhamma, the very nature of consciousness, the complete and perfect conscious reality that we truly are, rather than these momentary waves and tsunamis and typhoons and whirlpools that we experience through the sensory, through the senses, through the forms that we are experiencing at this time. So that's why these dhammas that arise and cease are not self. We think they are, you know, like a wave thinking that it's the ocean, thinking it's independent, when it's merely just another movement on the water. So like the emotions that we experience, the thoughts that we have are like motions on consciousness. They're changing, unstable, insecure. That's their very nature. And the sakyaditi, the self-view, is it, we bind ourselves to these insubstantial conditions and suffer from it. So that's the cause of suffering. This ignorant, blind attachment to kamadana, bhavadana, vipavadana. So the Buddha, in his compassion after enlightenment, he gave us this teaching of the Four Noble Truths to realize Niroda, Third Noble Truth, the end of suffering. It isn't getting rid of the waves on the ocean or the conditions that arise and cease, but it's not making problems about them not believing that they're something more than just a temporary changing movement. Because our true nature isn't, isn't a, just a, a momentary condition that arises and ceases according to other conditions. 
with recognizing, realizing the true nature of the Amatta Dhamma, the deathless Dhamma, ultimate reality, whatever you want to call it. And then in terms of words like vinyanang, anidasanang, anantang, sapadopavang, consciousness invisible, vinyanang, consciousness invisible, infinite, no boundary. Try to imagine no boundary. You know, so the thinking mind always has boundaries, it has qualities, conditions. Vinyanang anidasanang anantang sapado bhavang. Luminous all around. So the nature of consciousness is light, luminosity. It's deathless. Amata. Not subject to beginning or ending, birth or death. And our recognition of this on this retreat, this, this uh, kind of effort to convey the, the profundity of this teaching so that you can investigate for yourself. Now this isn't, I'm not expecting you to believe everything I say. What I say is merely attempt to encourage you to investigate, to have the the uh, inspiration and the right. You're given the right to investigate reality, your life as, as you experience it. Not to seeing it in personal terms anymore, personal and critical terms, according to ideals that you might hold to, but through these Dhamma teachings, which are about apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading inwards to be realized by wisdom, through wisdom, 